Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. As always, I'm your host, Adrian Knorr. You cannot get rid of me. And today we're going to be talking about something that almost every single woman will experience at least once in their life. Can you guess what it is? It's a urinary tract infection. Woo! Men can experience them too. I'm not leaving you out, boys. But we all know that women are much more likely to get UTIs. But do you know why that is? Keep listening and we'll dive deep up the urethra and into the bladder to figure it out, as well as a bunch more stuff that you probably had no idea about. I have to start out by saying that nothing I say in this podcast is medical advice and please, please, please talk to your doctor before diagnosing or treating yourself with anything over the counter. UTIs can progress and worsen, so it's important that you are evaluated by a medical professional other than Dr. Google. As always, I want to thank every single one of you. I think it's so cool how many of you have checked out Sassy Speculum and are learning new things about your body. If you've listened to previous episodes and you've enjoyed Sassy Speculum so far, please give it a rating and a review on whatever listening platform you're listening on. If you're on Spotify, you can now leave ratings, but they don't go live until I've received 10 ratings and we're almost there. So please, please, it only takes one tap and give the podcast a review so that we can share this information with the rest of the world. And feel free to continue reaching out to me personally. I truly love hearing from all of you, and your feedback is really monumental. And I finally got my shit together enough to create that anonymous contact form so that you guys can reach out to me with your stories, questions, and feedback anonymously. You can find it on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. It's also in a link tree on my social medias if that's easier for you. Or you can always DM me on Instagram or TikTok. Because I live my life in an absolute ridiculous manner, I have plenty of insane and inane stories to share about my own life and how I've experienced things. But I'm just one person, and I know that all of you listening have your own stories that are completely different than my own regarding all of these topics. So I really do want to hear your side of things. So reach out and let me know. I've gotten a few UTI stories and questions to share this week from listeners, and I can't wait to get into them later on, and yours could be next. So what is a UTI? In medical jargon, the cause of a UTI in a woman begins with the colonization of the vaginal introitus by uropathogens from the fecal flora followed by ascension via the urethra into the bladder, and in the case of pyelonephritis, to the kidneys via the ureters. Ugh. In normal human terms, You get bacteria from your anus and your vaginal opening, which goes up into the urethra, eventually climbing into the bladder and possibly the kidneys if it isn't treated adequately and timely. All of these places mentioned are a part of the urinary tract, the tract that makes, stores, and excretes urine, one of the body's main waste products. Starting from the outside in, the urethra is that tube that carries urine from your bladder to the toilet or forest floor if you happen to be popping a squat while camping. This is a little hole that you can see between your clitoris and vaginal opening. If the infection is caught in its early stages and it hasn't spread, this is called urethritis. Superior to the urethra and next in the tract is the bladder, a triangular container that fills up with urine and stores it until it's full and ready to excrete. When there's an infection here, it's called cystitis. Next, you have two thin tubes called ureters that carry urine from the kidneys to the bladder. The left ureter is actually one centimeter longer than the right, as the right kidney sits a little lower in the body due to the liver taking up space on that right side. That was a bit of a spoiler alert, but guess what? After the ureters come the kidneys. You typically have two kidneys, although you can totally live with only one. These are two small bean-shaped organs that live behind your intestines just above your hips. 
The kidneys are incredibly complicated little buggers that filter the blood by removing waste and water, which becomes urine. The kidneys are basically the bane of every med student's existence as they are so incredibly complicated and require excessive amounts of brain power to understand each silly convoluted tube. And they are literally so complicated that some of the tubes inside the kidneys are literally called the convoluted tubules, which in normal human talk translates to an extremely complex and difficult to follow tube, aka the kidneys are the worst. But it was when studying the kidney in my second year of med school that I finally started to understand the workings of the body. So while the kidneys suck, I finally started to feel like I could be a competent doctor while delving into these stupid little buggers. As I said in the beginning, UTIs are so incredibly prevalent that more than half of women on the planet will experience a UTI at some point in their life, with nearly one in three women having at least one prior to the age of 24. UTIs are the second most common form of infection seen in medical practices, accounting for nearly 25% of all infections seen in the office. So incredibly common that there's even a drinking game associated with UTIs. If you're one of those lucky people who gets bombarded with recurrent UTIs in your life, you'll love this. One, drink when you feel like you need to pee. Two, drink when it hurts to pee. Three, drink when you go pee and barely anything comes out. And four, drink when you feel the need to breathe. And now that we literally will never be able to stop drinking, let's talk about the symptoms of a UTI to look out for in case you slip up on your drinking. We all know the classic urinary frequency and urgency, which is the body's way of pushing out those nasty little organisms as quickly as possible, but you may be wondering if the job of the increased frequency in urine is to flush out the microorganisms, how can they continue to ascend or continue going up the tract? Uropathogens, also known as those bugs that cause infection in the urinary tract, have evolved to have very special characteristics that allow them to rock climb their way up the tract. They produce what's called adhesins, siderophores, and toxins that enable them to colonize and invade the tract. Adhesins are these little arms and legs that stick off the bacteria's surface that allow the cell to stick to other cells or surfaces. Siderophores steal iron from the host, which is you, and provide it to the bacteria as iron is an essential nutrient that helps them thrive. They also produce a wide array of toxins to allow extensive tissue damage, disable immune cells, and more. Other symptoms of a UTI include back, abdominal, and or pelvic pain, pressure in your lower pelvis, incontinence, painful urination, blood in your urine, abnormal urine color or odor, pain during sex, fever, and of course, the most elusive symptom of them all, fatigue. Random, but I love on all the COVID pre-screeners when they ask if you've experienced the following symptoms in the past two weeks and fatigue is always on there. Like, yo, this is America. Everyone is tired all the time. Does it mean that I don't have to go to work if I'm fatigued? Fatigue is such a funny little symptom that can either mean you stayed up too late last night getting as much fantasy reading done as you could muster, or you're dying, or anywhere in between. Anywho's, while UTIs are much more prevalent in women, we actually have a few things that our body is made for to help us to aid in both prevention and treatment of UTIs. The first thing is that we have an unobstructed urine flow. Once urine leaves the bladder, unlike men, women don't have anything that the urethra has to travel through to exit the body. It can just run right out like a river. The second thing is that urine, in both men and women, has special characteristics like its osmolarity, urea concentration, pH, and specialized proteins that inhibit bacterial growth and colonization. 
We also have specialized cells that line the urinary tract when bacteria camps out that secretes what's called interleukin-8, a protein that regulates the immune system. This particular protein recruits neutrophils to the site, which help to get rid of the bacteria bugs. So now that you're picturing little cells army crawling their way up the tubes of your insides while they stuff your nutrients into their little pockets, making you very exhausted, let's talk about testing. When you go to your doctor with the previously mentioned symptoms of a UTI, or probably with any urinary complaint in general, we will choose to run a urinary analysis, or as I'll refer to it in the future, a UA, because you know doctors can't be bothered to use whole ass words. But most people don't actually know what we're looking for with a UA and what the positives and negatives mean. So let's dive in. There are two things we look at with just our eyes, and then the rest are chemically assessed. The things we can see are color and appearance. Color is, it's pretty obvious. We all know that your pee turns more yellow the more dehydrated you are, or it can tell us that you're actually taking those B vitamins that we recommended as your pee turns lemon Gatorade color, if you are, thanks to that riboflavin. With the appearance, we're looking to see if it's clear where you can read newsprint through it. This is normal, but there's also hazy, cloudy, or turbid. When the urine is hazy or cloudy, this means there is likely mucus, white blood cells, bacteria, casts, or other formed elements in the urine, typically due to some sort of inflammatory or allergic response. When the urine is turbid, meaning there is no ability to read newsprint through it or see anything clearly through it, this suggests the presence of copious formed elements in the urine. Whatever is going on with the urinary system, it's pretty severe if the urine is at this point. Or there's also non-pathological reasons for turbid urine. For example, you just had sex before coming into your visit and some semen took a wrong turn and chose to not go up the vaginal canal. But most of the time with a simple UTI, the urine is hazy to cloudy. After assessing what your urine looks like, we move to the chemical analysis. The first thing checked is specific gravity. This measures the dissolved substances present in the urine and it's a measurement of the kidney's ability to concentrate. It will be out of range if you have a UTI or another urinary infection with proteinuria, which we'll get to in a bit, but it's protein in your urine, diabetes, mellitus, or insipidus, as well as if you're dehydrated, this will be out of range. Next thing that we test is the pH. This tells us how acidic or basic your urine is, and it can help us determine how likely you are to develop kidney stones. Leukocytes is a fancy word for white blood cells, which are your cells that are active in an immune response. If there's any sort of infection, like a UTI or an allergic response, these cells become activated and will be seen in the urine as they are excreted. If you have positive leukocytes, there is an inflammatory process going on in your system. The next parameter we look at is nitrites. If you have positive nitrites, there is a bacterial infection, typically E. coli. When you eat a nitrate-containing food, like green leafy vegetables or processed meats, certain bacteria have the ability to convert nitrates to nitrites, which is a simple biochemical conversion that I'm not going to get into as I guarantee that nobody cares. Positive nitrites is a rapid screening test for a UTI as it detects the initial bladder infection. But as with all medical tests, the negative nitrite doesn't rule out a UTI. We also look for an enzyme called leukocyte esterase. This will be either a positive or a negative and is the enzyme that is released by the white blood cells that I already talked about. 
White blood cells don't just randomly break down in the urine, so this would be only positive in an inflammatory response. A positive result can be indicative of a bacterial infection or trichomonas, chlamydia, or yeast infections can also lead to positive leukocyte esterase. One of the big kahunas that we look at is protein or proteinuria. You can have protein in your urine from something as benign as a really hard workout yesterday and your kidneys got a little bumped around, or you're dehydrated, or it could be indicative of a chronic kidney problem. If there is protein in your urine, there's something going on with your kidneys and this always warrants further workup. The two most common causes of proteinuria are diabetes and high blood pressure, as both of these have pretty significant effect on the kidneys. The second big kahuna we're looking out for on a UA is glucose. If you have too much glucose in your blood, your body will start to spill it out into your urine. This is common in diabetes patients. Next on the test is ketones. This is a hot topic in today's society with people doing keto diets and then measuring the ketones in their urine to know if they're in ketosis. This measurement is more indicative of metabolic function instead of kidneys. We're also looking to see if there is any urobilinogen or bilirubin in the urine. These are both markers of liver function. These will both turn your pee much darker, and with bilirubin, there will be a yellow foam on top when the urine is shaken. If both urobilinogen and bilirubin are elevated, this is a liver issue. If bilirubin is present but not urobilinogen, it's a gallbladder problem, which is another organ right up next to your liver. And if urobilinogen is present but not bilirubin, then there's some sort of blood cell turnover issue at hand that your doctor will further work up. And finally, we look to see if there's blood and blood products in the urine. You can have blood in your urine for a myriad of reasons, including blood that's made its way all the way through kidney filtration or blood due to the inflammatory infectious irritative process at hand with a UTI. After we've looked at all of these results, we decide if a microscopic exam is necessary of the urine, which is looking for further red and white blood cells, cellular casts, fat cells, and organisms. If organisms are seen, we send out for the specimen to be cultured in a lab so that we know which antibiotics will be most effective in eradicating the bugs. The last thing I'll mention are cellular casts, because I think they're really interesting. They make official diagnosis much easier when they're present in the urine, because each different cast has a different origin and reason for being there. Red blood cell casts are correlated with a disease called post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is kidney inflammation after a strep throat infection. Renal tubular epithelial cell casts are not super indicative of anything pathognomic except for tubular issues within the kidneys. White blood cell casts are highly correlated to pyelonephritis, which indicates the UTI has ascended up into the kidneys. And finally, if hyaline casts are present, it indicates that the kidneys are filtering very sluggishly and have decreased function. This can happen because of strenuous exercise, from medications that make you pee, called diuretics, and from vomiting or fever. So that is what your doctors are looking for when we collect your urine. And I hope that spiel wasn't too boring. I think lab tests are really interesting, and I think that the majority of people don't really know what we're actually looking for, so I hope that that was informative and not deathly boring. As I mentioned earlier, just like birth control, no medical lab test is 100% accurate and they found that up to 20% of women will have UTI symptoms that are incredibly indicative of a UTI, but have a negative UA and urine culture. 
So if you feel like you have a UTI and your labs come back clean, there's still a strong chance that you could still have a UTI. Don't let your doctor bully you into thinking otherwise based solely on UA results. If you have any further questions regarding urinary analysis, send them my way. There is, of course, a ton more information, and there's a much deeper dive, and I'm happy to share that with anyone who's interested. And I promise it's about to get much more interesting because I'm going to tell you about my first UTI. I am very fortunate, and I've only had, I think, two in my lifetime. And when I got my first one, I was 23 years old, and throughout the first day, I just got this, like, terrible, burning, painful sensation in my low belly. But it was bachelor at night, so obviously I couldn't just lay low at home and cry alone like I do now when I watch Batch. But I had to go to the local college dive bar to watch it on the big screen, obviously. But I was in so much pain that I knew I wouldn't make it through the whole show, especially because I knew I'd miss important information running to the bathroom every four minutes. So I called the after hours number at my doctor's office and I lied to him. I told him that I knew exactly what was wrong with me, that I'd had UTIs before, and I needed antibiotics immediately. He said he needed me to come in the next day for a UA to confirm before prescribing antibiotics, but it was batch night, and I needed the drugs now if I was going to make it. Such a good little naturopath in the making right there. Of course, I didn't have the medical knowledge to know that starting antibiotics one hour before the show wasn't going to make a difference, as they take longer than one hour to take effect. And I also truly didn't know that that's what was wrong with me, so overall, I was just being stupid. But as usual with me, my stupid decisions got worse, and I somehow convinced him to prescribe the antibiotics without proof of infection, and I made it to that disgusting college bar where I did run in and out of the bathroom for the entire show, because I felt like I had to pee, and then after peeing, I still felt like I had to pee, but I made it seem like I was really just drinking a lot and had broken the seal because God forbid I say out loud how terrible I'm actually feeling. Anywho, after the show, we went home and the next morning I woke up with my entire pelvis on fire and I'd also started my period and I was so ready for my first day of work at a brand new job. (laughs) Not. Because it was my first day, I couldn't call out sick even though I knew it was gonna be very rough so I pulled up my uniform khaki pants, which I of course was terrified I was going to bleed and or pee through, and I went to work. At an office where I was the only female employee. I remember my boss's face every time I said I needed to step out to use the restroom, and I remember how absolutely petrified I was walking through the halls lined with other college-age men, while I was pretty sure a stain was slowly growing across my butt. At lunchtime, what I thought was going to be my one reprieve to sit on the toilet for an hour and eat my lunch reminiscent of my high school loner days, my brand new boss, who I'd literally just met hours before, invited me to come across the street with him to his apartment to eat lunch. Which I, of course, did because I didn't feel like I could say, no, sorry, I already have plans to occupy the bathroom. In hindsight, I now recognize that I could have been raped, kidnapped, or murdered walking into a strange man's apartment. So not my brightest decision, but also not my worst because I've done my fair share of naive, idiotic things that my adult self looks at and I wonder how I'm still alive. Anywho, I went over to his apartment. He cooked me pasta. I turned purple because I had to pee so badly and I didn't feel comfortable spending the hour in a man's bathroom for more reasons than just that it would have been awkward. Later that day, I started feeling better, and I did end up surviving and living to tell the tale to all of you listening. 
Dr. Hurtado, if you're listening to this, I deeply apologize for lying to you. You are a phenomenal doctor, and you're the one who convinced slash inspired me to become a doctor, so I honestly owe you everything. And to that boss, Phil, thank you for being a nice guy and not murdering me. I appreciate it. Since I was a good college kid and the cause of this particular UTI was because of too much boinking, let's talk about the link between sex and UTIs. I had a friend around this time who told me that she would avoid having sex with her boyfriend because if she even looked at his penis, she would get a UTI. And when she did eventually succumb, well, I've never realized how absolutely perfect that word is for this topic. You can now expect me to say it frequently, I'm sure. When she did give in, she would have to leap out of bed immediately after the act to pee before an infection set in. And she's not the only woman who has shared this story with me. So what is that connection between banging and infections? There's no research that supports that sex leads to a UTI, and you also can't catch a UTI from your partner. It's more of a combination of things happening during the act. When you have sex, the normal bacteria that's on yours and your partner's skin, especially those bugs that hang out around your butt, get smooshed around and can be pushed into the urethra. So it is true that the more sex you have, the more likely you are to contract a UTI if the proper precautions aren't taken, but there is, of course, no guarantee of that happening either way. Interestingly enough, according to studies, close to 80% of premenopausal women who present with a UTI have had sex within the previous 24 hours. There are also birth control methods that can increase the risk of a UTI, although they are less commonly used nowadays because there are much easier, much more effective, and less cumbersome methods. But diaphragms, they increase the risk because they're supposed to be left in the vagina for six to eight hours after intercourse, and they restrict the bladder from emptying fully, and also it aggravates your vaginal tissue, which creates a local atmosphere where bacteria can thrive, thus increasing the likelihood of a UTI. Any use of spermicide, either directly or with the use of those condoms that have spermicide already on them, can also increase the risk of a UTI. And while you cannot catch a UTI from someone else, bacteria can be passed back and forth between the two of you during sex, which makes sense because that's how STIs are passed, so if it can happen with those bacteria, why not others? You may be asking yourself, well, if my boyfriend can pass bacteria onto my skin that can give me a UTI, why isn't he getting one too? Women are 30 times more likely to get a UTI than men are, which totally sucks. And the main cause of this discrepancy, the length of the urethra. Remember the urethra is that hole that you can see between your clitoris and your vaginal opening? And it's the tube that travels from outside your body to the bladder. In women, this tube is only one to two inches long, which is shorter than your credit card is wide. And a man's urethra is six inches long or the size of a hot dog. It's longer because it has to travel the entire length of the penis as well as through the prostate and then finally up into the bladder. Because of this length discrepancy, the bacteria have a much shorter distance to army crawl up into the bladder in a woman. On another note, the female urethra is located closer to the anus, which, as I've mentioned many times, is the place where much of the bacteria comes from. Another compounding factor, the urethral opening in females is mostly mucosal tissue, which is thinner and more sensitive than the other skin on the body, and in men, it's a much drier environment. All of these skin factors make it easier to traumatize and irritate, and as mentioned before, an irritated environment creates a more welcoming environment for bacteria. 
As a woman ages, this tissue also becomes thinner over time due to the declining levels of estrogen in the body, which further exposes one to infection. It is, of course, very possible for men to get UTIs. As with any infection, they can go both ways, but they are very uncommon at 5 to 8 per year per 10,000 males, while women are sitting at a whopping 150 to 240 per year per 10,000 people. There are women who deal with recurrent or chronic UTIs. As I mentioned earlier, my friend who had to do the grand jeté out of bed after sex had multiple UTIs every single year. One listener sent me a message saying that UTIs have literally ruined many of her relationships as she never wanted to have sex because she would end up in excruciating pain afterwards. Something that's supposed to be fun and exciting turned into something really scary and painful. She's also found it difficult to express that she constantly needs some sort of accommodation from her partner, aka not having sex, without feeling like she's denying something that they want or need. She hasn't ever gotten a negative response from her partners, but thinks that they've just never really understood it enough for the request to be respected. But this is a serious hidden disability that is unfortunately way more common than we think. For these people who deal with recurrent infections after sex, it's like being allergic to dairy and knowing you're going to be in incredible pain after eating that cheesecake, but eating the cheesecake anyways because it's in front of you and it's begging to be eaten. That same listener says she got her first UTI at the age of 6 and her second one at the age of 15. Both of these times, she was not yet sexually active, so obviously it is possible for there to be anatomical and genetic differences that just make one more susceptible. She explains for the UTI that she got when she was 15. She was on vacation with a friend's family, and she told her friend's mom that she needed to see a doctor as she knew that she had a UTI. And the friend's mom refused to take her into a doctor because she was convinced that she was having sex and therefore didn't deserve to have the problem resolved, as she shouldn't already be having sex. This, of course, was terrifying and made her stress levels and therefore inflammation levels ramp up, making the infection worse. The mom then convinced her that she could have an STI and lectured her about how unacceptable this was for her age. No wonder she now has an incredible fear around getting UTIs with sex. Before she'd even ever had sex, her body had equated sex to pain, fear, and being in trouble. And that leads me to my next topic about the correlations between sexual abuse and UTIs and genitourinary complaints in general. There is a strong correlation between trauma and the physical body. There's a similar connection to experiencing something that is supposed to be fun and wonderful and it being turned into something scary and painful. The truth is, trauma is not just stored in your head. It can leave real physical imprints on your body. Even if an event took place when you were a child, you can still physically hold on to that event and it'll come out as a physical manifestation. All of your organs, tissues, skin, muscles, and endocrine glands in your body can take your experience of trauma and tuck it away. Oftentimes, with sexual abuse, women wind up with an array of pelvic problems like chronic UTIs, endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, fibroids, etc., 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 There has been so much research on the cognitive and emotional responses for a child who has experienced sexual assault, but until recently, there's been very, very little understanding of the impact on the physical manifestations. A study was performed in Quebec on young children who had been sexually abused when compared to children of the general population, and they found that the girls who had been abused were 2.1 times more likely to be diagnosed with urinary complaints 
and 1.4 times more likely to be diagnosed with genital health problems within 12 years of the abuse, with the most commonly reported problems being UTIs, kidney infections, and inflammation of the vagina and cervix. In a separate study that looked at adult sexual abuse survivors, 72% reported genitourinary complaints compared to the 22% control group. These studies and others prove that sexual abuse survivors have a significantly higher incidence of genitourinary dysfunction and the need for addressing abuse before these dysfunctions turn into a chronic problem is incredibly important for medical professionals. Dr. Stefan Porges, a trauma psychologist, explains that the survivor of sexual trauma may not have cognitive awareness of the experience, but their body has retained the memory and implicit feeling. It becomes locked in the body, especially the pelvis, until the trauma is addressed and worked through, which, as anyone with significant trauma knows, it's no easy feat. If you're interested in how the body holds on to trauma like this, or if you're in the medical field, I strongly recommend that you read the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's an amazing research-based book that discusses how trauma literally reshapes the body and the brain. I got a- another story from a different listener. They reached out to me and they said, do not pee in a wetsuit. They mentioned that they had gone surfing and they went pee in their wetsuit, like you're supposed to do apparently. But a few days later, they had absolutely debilitating back pain and a raging infection that had already spread up to her kidneys. Wetsuits are basically breeding grounds for bacteria as they're usually damp for long periods of time and often aren't cleaned really appropriately. And when you pee, as we've discussed extensively, you're flushing out bacteria from your body, which then can hang out in your wetsuit or swimsuit for that matter which then many people will continue to hang out in for hours at a time, which can lead to infection. The story reminded me of when I was in Israel and they advised us not to pee in the Dead Sea or we'd be in excruciating pain due to the high salinity. So I ended up going on a Google deep dive of places where you shouldn't pee. And I have to thank the listener for sharing the story as I learned actually a bunch of new things like don't pee on a minefield, which I guess makes sense, but it's something that I've never really thought about. I also learned that peeing in pools is not fab, which breaks my little heart as I've peed in literally every single pool that I've ever been in. And apparently, that well-known chlorine smell you smell when you get into a public pool, well, apparently that smell only partly comes from the chlorine, and the other part of that smell comes from the mixing of chlorine and ammonia, which comes from your pee, creating the chemical ammonium chloride, which is toxic to humans. But I did learn that when I was very little and my dad told me that he could tell when I peed in the hot tub because the water changed color, that this is an absolute lie as ammonium chloride is colorless and there are no swimming pool chemicals that can change color with the addition of urine. I also learned in the Amazon there's a microscopic fish that's attracted to ammonia and will swim up your urethra and latch on with its tiny teeth and bones if you pee in the Amazon. So I guess the moral of the story is only pee in a toilet. Now, so far we've discussed facts, research, serious stuff, funny stuff. Now let's talk about hope. Because in this ever-depressing world that we live in, we could all use a little bit more hope. There are many, many things that you can do to prevent getting a UTI, as well as things that you can do if you come down with the nasty buggers. But since I'm still a medical student, I can't give you treatment ideas or I could lose my license. So if you want that hope, go to your doctor. And if they say to just take antibiotics prophylactically, go to a different doctor because that doctor sucks. 
There are so many options and we have so many resources to literally change your life and help you to stop having your world run by infections. One listener wrote in asking about cranberry juice, whether it's actually beneficial or if antibiotics are always required for UTI. Because this is a very commonly asked question and you guys want and deserve answers, I'm gonna answer it. However, I'm not suggesting that you do or do not drink cranberry juice. I'm simply answering the does cranberry juice help question, for which there's incredibly mixed research. Remember earlier when I mentioned that uropathogens have little arms and legs that help them to attach themselves to the walls of your cells? Well, cranberries contain compounds called proanthocyanidins, which can prevent them from attaching to the bladder wall. Cranberries are also super anti-inflammatory and antibacterial. They work best in preventing UTIs in chronic or recurrent cases, but they've also been studied effectively for treating an active UTI. Two important aspects of cranberries to be aware of is that they can increase blood thinning effects of warfarin, which could be life-threatening, and also if you do choose to chug cranberry juice, make sure it's 100% cranberry juice and not cranberry juice cocktail because we aren't all Regina George and we can't all lose three pounds with cranberry juice cocktail. But in all seriousness, cranberry juice cocktail has a ton of added sugars to make it more palatable and increased sugars in your diet decreases your immune system's effectiveness and is also pro-inflammatory. And for the second part of this listener's question of are antibiotics always necessary, the answer is no. There are actual strict criteria that indicate whether or not antibiotics are necessary. For medical criterion, there are a ton of ands and ors, so bear with me, and for the sake of time, I'm only going to cover the criteria for people without an indwelling catheter because most of society doesn't permanently have a tube shoved up their urethra. So in order for antibiotics to be necessary, one must have a positive UA and a positive urine culture and pain with urination or fever and at least one of the following or if no fever, two of the following urinary urgency, frequency, pain above your pubic bone, visual blood in your urine, urinary incontinence, or pain when your doctor pounds their fist on your back. And that's all I've got for you guys today on UTIs. So thank you for listening to this long diatribe. I hope that you guys learned something new about such a common problem. And if you did, or if you have any questions about anything, send me a message. I'd love to know what you found most interesting or what you hated. Once again, please give the podcast a review and rating on whatever listening platform you're on, especially if it's Spotify, as those ratings don't go live and actually mean anything until I've reached 10 ratings. And I am super close, so help get this podcast out into the ether a little bit more, and I would be greatly, greatly appreciative. I have some ideas for the next episode, but I'm going to put a poll out on Instagram for which topic to cover first, because I have a few. So make sure to follow me at Sassy Speculum on Instagram and TikTok to partake in that poll and to get a sneak peek on the next topic. Once again, if you want to send me anonymous messages about your funny UTI stories or stories in general or questions, feedback, comments, or just to say hi, you can find the anonymous forum at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash Sassy Speculum. And you can also find that link on my link tree on Instagram. And I can't wait to hear from you guys. And remember, the moral of the story is to never pee in a wetsuit. Thank you, random listener, for sending that story in. I learned new things, and it was a great contribution. And thank you guys, all of you, again for listening. Bye!